And thank you, Derek, for that reading of the gospel. Uh, Sanctuary, by the way, um, we have currently seven new deacons serving our community now, which is a really, really wonderful thing. Uh, So you're going to see them doing more and more, uh, not just in our services, but also just as part of our community. Um, This is just because I forgot and I have to do a little bit of housekeeping. Can one of our deacons see me after service? Because we have a, uh, a family who just welcomed a new baby into the world and they've asked to receive Eucharist after service today. Can one of you help me make sure that happens for them? Wonderful. And that's just generally a good housekeeping note for all of us that if you can't be here on a Sunday, you can ask to have Eucharist brought to you, which is a really sweet and a really wonderful thing. Because what it says about us as a community is that the most important thing about what we do here on a Sunday morning is not just the things that I have to say about the text that we just heard. It's not having really wonderful emotional feelings during singing songs and all of that. The most important thing that's happening when we come together is we are encountering the risen Christ week after week after week in the bread and in the cup. And one of our hopes for sanctuary, one of the things that I, I trust is happening to us and in us and for us is that when we can't be here, the thing that we are hungriest for Uh, isn't just the the dynamics of community. It's not just to be able to sing songs together, which is always wonderful. Not always just to hear a word, but to receive the word in the bread and in the cup. So uh, shameless plug, if you're not signed up for our newsletter, uh, every Friday I send out just a little note about what's going on at Sanctuary and some things to just keep you in the loop. But there's also a button on that newsletter that just says, hey, I can't be there this Sunday. Can I receive Eucharist? And we'll set aside some of what is consecrated here at this table at this moment. We'll set that aside and then we will bring that to you wherever you are, whether you find yourself sick and in the hospital, whether you find yourself sick at home, um, whatever the case may be, we would love to bring you Eucharist. So if you can't be here, you have ways of making that accessible to you. Our gospel today is this curious passage where Jesus asks, who am I? And they say, this is who you are. And Jesus says, okay, but don't tell anybody that. I've been doing a lot of thinking these past couple weeks about sanctuary. And yes, I do think about you. I do think about us uh, even outside of a Sunday morning and not just operationally and functionally what we're doing, but, but ontologically, I think about us. I think about who, who are we and who are we becoming? Who are we as a community? Who do I hope we are becoming as a piece of Christ's church in the city of Tulsa? And I don't think that it's just serendipitous that this week we seemed to hear a, a kind of uptick in the amount of political commentary, not just, not just nationally, but even locally within our, our state and city officials within Tulsa Public Schools. We're heading into an election year. It feels like we're always heading into an election year somehow. Debates have already started and we can all just take a deep breath because this isn't a sermon about politics, not really. This isn't about parties or platforms and how to vote. That's never been sanctuary's way. But this is a sermon about how we continue to know who we are, who we are in the noise of other voices trying to tell us who we should be. 
and what we should do. This is really about a sermon about how we continue to understand ourselves in light of who God is. And also, how, how do we rightly identify what those other voices and what those other forces are in our world that are always tempting us to be unfaithful to who we are in order to secure a kind of future for ourselves or for those forces. Our psalm for today comes out of Psalm 138 and it opens with this line, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Before the gods, lowercase g, I sing your praise. The psalmist is telling us that when we worship, when we gather, when we come into this space week after week, in every part of our lives, we are in full view of all of the lowercase g gods that exist in our lives. These gods include the gods of nation, the gods of tribe, the gods of family, and it's before all of those gods, some of those are gods of our inheritance. They're gods that have been given to us. Some of them are of our own making. And it's before all of those that we come and worship Jesus, that we navigate our allegiance to Christ and we strive toward faithfulness in full view of all of those other gods in our lives. And the temptation of these gods, the thing that they offer us that is so appealing, is that while we come and we engage in the foolishness of worship, these gods offer things that aren't foolish. I mean, every, every week we come and we sing songs and we listen to the reading of scripture and we say our prayers, we try to engage and we try to hear what the spirit is saying to us and to the world, to these other gods, what we are doing is foolish. But these other gods, they offer us those things that are not very foolish, things that are actually pretty practical and things that actually make sense. They offer us things like power and security, a sense of belonging. But they offer us those things. They offer us power and security and belonging in exchange for our allegiance in exchange for our time, for our loyalty. Traditionally, the church has talked about these gods using the language of principalities and powers. In Colossians 1, Paul talks about what exactly he means by rulers and authorities, by principalities and powers, by gods and by kings. And then he makes this statement about Christ. He says, for in him... In Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created. The things he says that are visible and the things that he says are invisible. All of it was created. All things, Paul says, were created through Christ and were created for Christ. And he goes on to list those things that are visible and those things that are invisible, those things that are heavenly and that are earthly. He mentions thrones and dominions, rulers, powers, kings and kingdoms. These are the principalities and the powers that Paul is talking about. This is a far cry from what I grew up hearing 
about principalities and powers. Growing up, maybe this is a familiar story for you too, the principalities and powers were almost exclusively in reference to demons and spirits and really any force that's working against you. Any force in your life that you sense is coming against you, which could include your neighbor. Those are principalities and powers. Which is almost certainly not what Paul means here. Here, what Paul is suggesting is that whatever he means by principalities and powers, it's inevitably something that was originally created through Christ and for Christ. Because why? Remember, all things were created through him and for him. And somehow, in some way, when we gather in this space, when we worship in the way that we worship, our worship, in some way, is for their sake, for those powers and those principalities. Our worship is for their sake. What Paul means by principalities and powers are all of those structures that give meaning and give purpose to our lives. They aren't pitchfork-carrying devils. Pitch, prince, there's a lot of P words here. Pitchforks, principalities, and powers. are They're in some ways visible and in some ways invisible. Some ways recognizable and in other ways unrecognizable. But they structure our lives. They give meaning and shape to our lives. This matters because as Christians, what we do in here... What we do when we engage in corporate worship, when we join our voices and our hearts and our minds together and celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross, it's not just about us. In some ways, it's about all of those other gods in our lives and what Christ has done for them. This is the story that we rarely tell, if we ever tell it. That what God was doing in Christ wasn't just about you and it wasn't just about me delivering human beings from the power of sin and death. Somehow, God was doing something to and for these principalities and these powers, these gods in whose presence we live and work and worship and vote and pay taxes and purchase from Amazon. Everything that we do is in full view of those powers and those principalities. And what Jesus is doing on the cross is not only delivering us from sin, but from whatever power those powers have over us. Whatever power those powers and principalities have over us, whatever kind of say they have in our lives and who we are and how we organize ourselves. Colossians 2 tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that by Christ's death and resurrection, these principalities and powers, not that they don't exist, not that they don't still have power, but that they no longer have power over you who are in Christ. They no longer have any say over you and who you are and how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see your neighbor. 
then Paul shifts and he says, therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink, observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. These things, he says, are only a shadow of what is to come. But the substance, the real thing belongs to Christ. Paul has just said that Christ has disarmed, defeated, overthrown the powers and principalities that seek to rule our lives. And he jumps straight to saying, so don't let anyone judge you based on what you eat and what you drink, the festivals you celebrate, how you live on the Sabbath. He's saying that the way that principalities and powers rule our lives is by using human tradition in order to dominate us to give our lives supposed meaning rather than true meaning. That these powers and principalities, they tell us stories that may be right, but they're not true. Notice Paul doesn't list saying bad words. He doesn't mention R-rated movies or getting tattoos. Paul lists what you eat and what you drink, what you believe to be holy, your festivals, how you mark time, the things that seem to give your life purpose. Pay attention to those things because that is what the gods use. The way that you organize your life, the way you divide the world based on your understanding of things, those are the ways the powers and principalities seek to rule your life. And Paul says, Christ has put those powers to rest. So why do you still submit to their regulations? Why do you still play by their rules? In our Old Testament reading for today, we've crossed the threshold from Genesis over to Exodus and it begins with the death of Joseph and the establishment of a new king in Egypt. It says this in Exodus one, then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Are you tracking in this story so far? Remember, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and then says to his brothers, come here to this place that I've made prosperous. Come be a part of this world that I've helped create. And the Israelites settle there and they're prolific, it says. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Notice, he didn't know Joseph, which means he doesn't know that these people came here willingly. He thinks that these people somehow have been captured, have been somehow brought here against their will, but that's not true. Again, he's telling a story that might look right, but it's not the truth. Look, Pharaoh says to the people, look at these people who don't eat like we do. Look at these people with different holy days than us. 
Look at those people who worship differently than we do. Look at those people whose lives are given meaning and purpose different from ours, who understand the world differently than we do. Look, look at them. In a moment, Pharaoh taught his people to see the Israelites in a kind of way. No longer as people who are cohabitants in the land. No longer as people who share this space that their brother Joseph made prosperous. They no longer have a sense of who they are and who their neighbor is. They can only see a threat. Listen, as people of God, one of the voices we always have to resist is the voice of those who would make us feel like our neighbors are a threat to us. Any voice in your life that says, look, look at them, look at those people over there, they are going to take away that thing that you want for yourself. Look at those people, those people over there, they're the real reason your life hasn't gone the way that you think it should. Look, those people over there, they're getting a little more power. They're getting a few too many rights. They're getting more seats at the table than we think they should. We better knock them down a peg. Remember what the text says. It was a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Did not know Joseph who forgot that it was Joseph who made that place a prosperous place to begin with, who secured a future for that place. Oftentimes it's our inability to be able to look back and see that our commonality that causes us to feel threatened by one another is not real. Our commonality is the thing that binds us together there's this beautiful prayer for Compline for, for the end of the day in the Book of Common Prayer that says this, oh God, your unfailing providence sustains the world we live in and the life we live. Watch over those both night and day who work while others sleep. And listen to this, grant that we may never forget that our common life depends upon each other's toil through Jesus Christ our Lord. This prayer and this Exodus story, they are reminders that our greatest threat is not our neighbor. It's believing the story that the principalities and the powers tell us about our neighbor. That our neighbors are people to be feared. That we are in perpetual competition with our neighbors that everything we have, we have because we worked for it and we deserved it and we earned it, not because our common life depends upon each other's toil. In today's gospel reading, the disciples have fallen into a similar trap. The disciples are listening to the gossip and to the rumors about Jesus. And of course they have, because why else would Jesus ask them this question, who do people say? that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks them this question because he realizes 
Some people have been talking about me. And these people who are closest to me, do they see me in ways that are appropriate, in ways that are true and not just right? Listen, if you exist in the world, but if you have kids, if you have kids that are going back to school right now, one of the most valuable things you can teach them is whose voice to listen to. What voices have any kind of say in who they are and what kind of value they have and how loved they are and the worth that they have? I've got a niece right now. She's kind of reeling from some middle school girls and they're middle school girls, you know, and part of what we're having to tell her, hoping, trying in some way to tell her is, listen, middle school girls are the worst people you could listen to. Listen to the people who know you. Listen to the people who love you. Don't listen to these girls that are just so insecure and life is weird and our bodies are changing and we don't really understand what's going on and so I will do anything to get the attention off of me and put it onto somebody else. That's what's animating these kinds of actions. Those kinds of hurtful words that make you feel separate and other than don't listen to those voices. And we, as the people who love them, parents, we have to be the ones who tell them, no, 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 no. They don't get to say who you are. We get to say who you are because I know you and because we love you and we see the value and the worth that you have. Not because you've done anything, but just because of who you are. And listen, you can tell them to just kick those girls to the curb because you don't need those kinds of voices in your life. You don't want those kinds of voices in your life. Those people are not your friends to begin with. <laughs> Speak to your kids like this. Let them know they're seen and they're valued and they're cherished and they're known. This is why Jesus has to disrupt the disciples a bit. He knows that there are other voices competing for who gets to say who Jesus is. And here's what's happened. The crowds, and therefore the disciples, they've learned to hear Jesus a certain kind of way. These are people who know about messiahs. The problem was all of their messiahs just kept dying. And so in some ways, they thought they knew what they were getting from Jesus. He's just like those other prophets that they named, like Elijah and like John the Baptist, like Jeremiah, and then very conveniently, those other prophets. But maybe this time, they're hoping he'll be successful. He might just be like all those other prophets that we've heard about. He might just be like Elijah and Jeremiah, but hopefully this time, this one won't die. But while they've learned to hear Jesus a certain kind of way, Peter has heard from the Father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You are the Christ, Peter tells him. You are the son of the living God. Something new is happening with this Messiah that didn't happen with all of those other would-be Messiahs and prophets. Peter had learned in spite of all of his other faults to listen to the right voice. 
to look not at what other people were telling him to see, but at the Jesus who was right in front of him and to see him for who he is. That is what we are after. That is what we are trying to do when we engage in this foolishness of worship is to drown out all of those other voices that are trying to give our lives shape and meaning and say, no, it's just Jesus. So long as we look where Pharaoh wants us to look, we'll never see the Lord. We will only hear rumors of the Lord. We'll never see Christ in our neighbor. We'll only see our neighbors as threats, as competition. How do we make this shift? First, we have to see ourselves rightly, to see ourselves as ones who are loved and as ones who are in Christ. Henry Nowen's, Henry, Henry Nowen, who is no stranger to sanctuary, said this, we cannot see God in others or in the world, but the God in us sees God in others and in the, in the world. What's he saying? God recognizes God. The life of Christ in you recognizes the life of Christ in others. He says the deeper our communion with God is, the more we will discover him in all that we see. How is that possible? Remember Paul's words, because through him and for him, all things were created. That is why Jesus says those who are happy are those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. The mystery of the spiritual life is that heart speaks to heart. Spirit speaks to spirit. God speaks to God. And that we are lifted up into the inner communion that takes place within God. What is that inner communion with God? It's the giving and the sharing and the receiving of love. And giving and sharing and receiving freely can only happen when we are no longer threatened by one another's presence, when we are no longer in competition with one another or listening to voices of fear or giving Pharaoh any attention when he says, look at those people. Pharaoh says, look, but Jesus says, listen, blessed are you. Now go live a life of blessing. Amen.